Mac Ingle, welcome to the Ingle Angle podcast. I am Fort Worth Star-Telegram columnist Mac Ingle. Uh, going in a little bit of a different direction for this episode for two reasons. Number one, I can. That helps a lot. Number two, I can't admit, and I am out of the closet as a nerd. It's all good. Uh, like everybody else, I think I can't admit that I am fascinated by outer space. I am fascinated by what is out there. I just don't know that much about it. I'm a total sucker for America's space history, the Gemini program, Chuck Yeager breaking the speed of sound, or the sound barrier, rather. Uh, certainly the Apollo missions fascinate me, the Challenger missions, all of those things. They've always fascinated me. Visited the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. a handful of times. Love that place. Planetariums, those are always fun. I went to the McDonald Observatory in West Texas. Can't recommend that enough. That's a very special place. Got to see the International Space Station fly overhead. That was neat. Um, and I'm also a big sucker for documentaries. Big fan. And that genre has exploded in the last 10 or 12 years with the advent of streaming. There's documentaries on everything now. So my guest for this episode combines these interests and passions of mine. She is a trained painter. <laughs> Different background. She is a trained painter and has an extensive background in photography and has become an award-winning documentary filmmaker. She's created multiple documentaries for PBS's Nova, including one with Neil deGrasse Tyson and the famous decision to kick Pluto out of Club Planet. She made another title uh, called Looking for Life on Mars, which is about looking for life on Mars. She has a new one about, which includes just stunning imagery from the James Webb Telescope. Even if you don't even can't even conceive or comprehend what the interview subjects in this documentary in this episode of Nova talk about, the imagery from this telescope is just astounding. Now, back in 1997, she made a 30-minute documentary titled "Daughter of the Bride." It was nominated for an Academy Award. You can easily find that online, and it's a wonderfully sweet tribute about her mother's journey to remarrying after she lost her father. She's a fascinating interview, really interesting life, and a great pro. Please welcome Terry Randall. Painting major. Yes. Painting major, photography, some filmography. What enticed you to do films about space? I've always been fascinated with space exploration. So when the opportunity came up, I was, you know, with Nova, I was very excited about it. And then we realized that if we um, produce programs that aired around a, a big event in a mission mm -hmm. that where it was in the media that that we could bring more people to watch um, and get excited about the topic. So it's just something that I've always been interested in and um, and got the opportunity to to do these programs. So you've done on obviously done other projects before before you took on this one on the James Webb telescope. And even before I had seen this, 
I was well aware that this project had a lot of problems, which you chronicle, which you chronicle in there. When you were doing this, did at any point did you think, man, this thing's just not going to happen? That that this thing's that that it's not only never going to go up to outer space. This telescope is just it's just not going to work. It's not at the right time. Um, we first I first started talking about uh. Web with Nova in 2017 mm-hmm. for a 2018 launch, which was already almost a decade late. <laughs> the note with what NASA had had originally, you know, projected. Um, and when we started working on the first hour on Web in now, I'm trying to remember, was it 2020? Um, I was concerned that we didn't really know when it was going to launch and then the launch did slip a little bit and then a little bit but then it was like you know it finally because we were starting on something with the with the um understanding of when it was going to launch and it was not clear but by the time they launched i'd really gotten to know the team Mm -hmm. especially a lot of the engineers and while there was an element of concern on their part. What I've learned on working on so many different NASA missions is that these they're really good at what they do. They're just really, I mean, and they're doing such amazing things and they know what they're doing. So they don't take a whole lot of risk, which is why it was delayed as many times it was. So by the time they launched, they had prepared and prepared and prepared and prepared looked at every single different possible scenario. So they they were ready. So I, I had faith. So did you feel like the images that when, when somebody watches this on PBS, either on their flat screen or the HD TV or their computer screen, is it as good as what you saw when you were seeing it yourself? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're basically NASA makes everything available. It's a government agency makes everything available online for everyone. So everybody has the opportunity to see the best images. So about 20 minutes into this documentary or episode of Nova, however you want to classify it, I was really hoping you were going to do with this what you did, which was, is there life out there? And you asked the scientists these questions. You've now studied this for some time. Um, what are your thoughts on the subject personally? Do from, you- from Well, from what? I've heard scientists say it's probably out there. It's just finding it is, it's just a very big universe. It's very hard to even imagine. We can't imagine how big it is. It's just beyond comprehension. And, and so out there is very far away. And the kind of technology for out there, I don't think exists yet. They're working on new telescopes for exoplanets. Mm-hmm. But I, I get the sense, and this is something someone like Heidi Hamill can, um, can comment on is what are our chances of finding it within our own solar system in Enceladus or Europa? Or, you know, there are other ocean worlds. We're just beginning to discover new ocean worlds in our solar system. So I think that probably is our best bet, something closer to home. But that's just, you know, a filmmaker's perspective. Well, you've done it. The reason I ask you is because you've done it now and, and you've really immersed yourself into this world that most people don't don't do. 
most of us just don't have either have the time or even the wherewithal to do it. But considering where you were 10, 12 years ago to where you are now, how have your attitudes about that that question changed? Um, I think it's more probable. But again, I think from what scientists say, so many scientists, no one will say it's not out there. Right. <laughs> right. You know, because there's no proof that it's not out there, right? And scientists aren't going to make claims like that. But they will say they think it's out there. So they're willing to on that, you know, on the positive side of it or the, you know, the finding that that really is going to happen at some point. Uh, one of your interviews, you talked to Naomi Rowe Gurney. I believe she was British. Works for NASA, NASA, NASA. I don't know what NASA is. NASA, and she talks about the moon of Saturn, Titan, and the life on it. And she says, if we find life on Titan, it's not going to be like life on Earth. Do we have to get our head around that what we think is life here on Earth? We have to change the definition of what could be life someplace else. Well, definitely. I mean, because, you know, Titan is methane-based versus uh, H2O-based. So if our, our, what we know is limited in terms of how life evolves on Earth. And, um, you know, there are missions now to Titan. There are missions to Europa. There's a lot of, I think, in the next decade or two, because <laughs> these missions take, you know, it takes a long time to build it and then get there. But... Um, that I think of those, some of those questions will be answered, but it is, um, it is hard. How do you identify it? You know, what are the identific, what do you use to identify life that's not life as we know it? Well, are we too sort of wrapped up or narrow scoped into what life has got to be a flower? Life has to be a little green Martian with two little beady eyes or, you know, do we get too locked into those things? And has all this research broadened our definitions yet? Are we still, because space exploration really isn't that old. Are we still sort of anchored and rooted in terminology that started in 1970-ish? In terms of the search for life? I think in terms of just in search of anything and knowing what it is that we're looking at. Because it, it does seem to me that we're still in kind of an infancy of this because the technology didn't exist until 68, 65, 70. Yeah, and the technology still doesn't exist possibly. I mean, possibly it will exist in these new missions to Titan and to Enceladus. Mm -hmm. I mean, in um, Europa, in, in, in the technology that they're now developing to be able to if, find life that we know how to identify. Um, and with Titan, with all the research they're going to be doing and some of the ideas they have for it, um, they'll be looking at ways to, I think they'll apply some of what we know, like duplication, life duplicates. You know, there'll be certain sort of things they'll look for that aren't necessarily water-based or carbon-based. Mm -hmm. But they're going to have to take some clues from what we know in terms of the way life behaves. Because what other, <laughs> how else can you do it? 
No, I, I think that's the part of it. Like you're, it does seem to me as this has evolved, just sort of observing it from a distance is that you kind of have to be flexible to, I don't want to say make it up as you go along, but understand that there are certain worlds and certain parameters of this that exist here that don't exist in other places. And we, it seems to me that we keep trying to make it fit on based on these standards here. Am I way off base in that thought? No, we do. But I think, you know, um, scientists talk a lot about the unknown unknowns, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, um, the surprises in the, the things that they discover that they weren't even looking for. And I think that's where they're going to find their clues is in stuff that they just absolutely did not expect, but have enough knowledge to start to dissect and examine and draw some conclusions about what it means. So I think it's going to be the surprises that gets them there. I'm sure you saw this, Terry, but I want to introduce it anyway. I think it was last year, actor William Shatner, uh, man who played James T. Kirk on Star Trek. He had a, he wrote a journal entry about his brief visit to outer space when he went on the Jeff Bezos rocket. I'm paraphrasing this, so just allow me. He wrote, I love the mystery of the university, of the universe. I love all the questions that we have come over to us, thousands of years of exploration, hypothesis. But when I looked in the opposite direction into space, there was no mystery, no domestic awe to behold. All I saw was death. My trip to space was supposed to be a celebration. Instead, it felt like a funeral. Now, there's more to it, but you get kind of the the gist of what he was saying. After all of your work and look that you've done into to chronicling space and space exploration, do you think Shatner was right? Certainly not my reaction. I just, you know, for me, it's wonder and the vastness of the universe and what's out there and how much diversity is out there and things that we don't know. And, and I love, you know, especially in the day, the times that we're living in, mm -hmm. we're so, you know, where life is not easy for most people. And, you know, with pandemic, things haven't, have certainly been hard that, um, I find it, um, that these, the researchers that are looking beyond right here, uh, it, I find it really inspiring that there's this vast universe out there. To explore so i think it's great do you have any would, uh, spatial exploration is now being made kind of available for the commoner you know in terms of you have companies now pushing to make space exploration available for tourism basically i, I know it's for the obscenely wealthy or very very famous right now having done this work do you have any aspiration to go take a look up there and see what's around Absolutely. If I got the chance, I'd be on the first flight. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you did, you made Looking for Life on Mars two or three years ago. Uh, and this has been a subject that's been brought up on your network and not just PBS, but other people too, about the possibility of uh, human exploration on Mars. But the counter to that that I've seen on PBS is that people don't understand just how far away Mars is. This is not like going to the moon. Is it just too far away to really expect in our lifetime we will see a man or a woman walking on Mars? Oh, no, absolutely we will. I think, really? I think, well, yeah, because I mean, with the moon, 
in our lifetimes, but let's say a few decades away, maybe two, three decades away. Okay. I mean, I'm actually starting for Nova to do research on um, the Artemis missions. Okay. You know, moon mm -hmm. to Mars. And um, while it'll take some time, to, I have a feeling I might see it in my lifetime. Really? So you think in, in your lifetime, which would be our lifetime, that we might be fortunate enough that we will see a man-made a man to, to, to Mars, that we will do to Mars what we did to the moon back in the 60s? Yeah, yeah I have a lot of, you know, it, I think it all depends on um, NASA having the funding to do it. Right. I think they can do it. And it's always an issue of funding. And they, you know, they usually start with projecting that something will cost a certain amount and take a certain amount of time. And it usually goes beyond that. <laughs> so it's sort of because the challenge is, you know, the challenge is so huge. But I think if for, for the Artemis missions, one, two, three, they're talking about four, five, six, ten. Um, if those really get going, it's going to happen. So that would be the equivalent of Gemini and then to the Apollo missions. Am I on the right sort of? Yeah. Yep. So, you know, when space exploration started back in the 60s, one of the counter arguments to it has always been, um, and it's a fairly pragmatic argument as well. This is a lot of money. This isn't, you know, $20. <laughs> this is a lot. Uh, and then whether or not it's worth it. Um, is it worth it? Well, it's certainly a drop in the bucket compared to if you look at the overall budget. Um, and one of the other things that makes it worth it is I was just looking at um, Artemis is uh, a collaboration between the U.S., Canada, ESA, the European Space Agency, and JAXA, the Japanese Space Agency. And that kind of... Uh, Collaboration, I think, is so critical. And scientists know how to cross borders in communication. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, not only is what they discover inspiring, but I think it's very the collective experience and different cultures working together on a on a on a what with one goal in mind is really important. So I don't think that aspect of it should be overlooked. Terry, what's missing from captivating uh, the world's attention in space exploration? Because when I think about when it started, there was the wonder of going into space and the Gemini missions, and then the wonder of putting a man on the moon. And then in the 80s, you had the wonder of the, of, um, you know, the Challenger missions. And obviously, there was a tremendous tragedy that put everything on hold. We've had other tragedies since then. Um, specifically the one I'm thinking of in 2002 or three with that one. But it does seem to me that we are missing that NASA or space exploration is missing either that figure or that mission that really grabs our attention. Am I wrong on that? Uh, I think that. Uh, you know, I don't know if I know how to answer that because from my perspective, I'm because I'm working with the scientists and they're so inspiring. And I hear a lot from people who are very excited about learning more about 
the universe and space exploration. So I think there's a, a lot of people out there that really are inspired to to follow, you know, space exploration and what the scientists are learning. So you think it's still there? That, 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 oh, yeah. That, that, okay, good. All right. I, I do, and I think the Artemis missions, once they get, you know, we did Artemis 1, took a while now, we'll see when Artemis 2 is going to happen. Um, but I think that we'll see once humans. Yeah. Leaving the planet again and not just going, you know, for a little joyride, but to <laughs> <Right. laughs> explore space. Um, I think that kind of, and there'll be the arguments. So people, people will say, well, why are we spending money on this? And, right. and then there'll be people who are just like, wow, let's see what they find out. Will they make it? Is it okay? What will happen next? Uh, I want to change gears here because I really wanted to ask you about your Academy Award nominated short documentary, Daughter of the Bride. It was a lot different, obviously, than, <laughs> than your other work. And it's so sweet. And uh, it's a subject that I don't think, I don't think gets any attention, which is the idea when you lose a parent that the other parent may move forward with another relationship. Um, your mother, you chronicle, you chronicled your mother remarrying and talking to your siblings. And this does happen a lot. It changes a family dynamic considerably, sometimes good, sometimes bad. What prompted you to, to put this on film and capture it? I think, you know, sometimes <laughs> I feel as a filmmaker, you know, you, I, you know, you get caught by, a, it's like catching a bug. You know, something happens, and I don't think it happens a lot of times, but I think, you know, a few times in one's life, something happens that you go, I'm a filmmaker, I had to document this. Is that and, what it was? Just for yeah. you, like, oh, I'm, I'm going to, this is my job, my craft, my passion, I'm just going to document this. Yeah, I think subconsciously, I was clearly working through the experience. And actually, I finished it with Sheila Evans at HBO, mm -hmm. um, who pushed me a lot because I started it independently, shot it, and then worked on it for a few years. And um, she sort of pushed me to really evaluate what I was doing and why I was doing it. And why, you know, these are questions sometimes when you start a film uh, that you're doing independently that well, it takes time to answer. It's like when you start a painting, you may not know where you're going with it, but there's a, you're doing it. And you're going to find the answer along the way. Well, unlike a painting, although a painting obviously is very personal, writing is very personal, this subject, chronicling your mother's journey to a second marriage, basically, that's extremely personal. Was it cathartic at all? Yes, I also did another film before this um, where I went to Poland with my father to explore our roots, mm -hmm. to find out what happened to my grandfather's brothers and sisters during the Holocaust. Wow. So it, this was like the second family film that I did. And why do I do them? I'm actually trying to work on one now about my mother at 96 and what her life is like. So I've been filming her for the last few years. Your mom's 96? Yeah. Way to go. My dad's 90. Congratulations. 
That's yeah, ninety's good though. Ninety, you know, ninety. They're still like she was really ninety's young. <laughs> yeah, she was still kicking at ninety. Nine, then this is the slow decline. But I guess I don't know. There's something in me that like that needs to explore this. And I and I really think it's great, you know, if you're a filmmaker and there's something that really grabs you, mm -hmm. you're lucky because if not, you'll never get anything made. You were nominated for Academy Award with it. It doesn't yes. happen every day. Did you go to the ceremony? Yes. So I've heard different things about attending the Academy Awards. Um, they kind of run the gamut. Was it fun for you or was it? surreal or was it kind of awkward which one did it fit stressful really why well i mean at one level it's well because you know when you walk in there was a whole thing about where they seat you yeah if they seat you close up then they think that you're going to win and i was like in the third row and i lost so that was sort of and the people who won were all the way in <laughs> you know, upstairs. I so, think you need uh, elevator. Right. And then it was always interesting. I mean, what was fun is that, you know, during the commercial breaks, all these famous people who were sitting around, you would get up and they're schmoozing with each other and they're like real people. So, I mean, and they're all in one room. So, but it was very stressful. Uh, I asked Ken Burns this. That's, this is my, that's my one name drop. So I had an opportunity to ask Ken Burns this last year about the genre of documentary films and just how much it's changed really in the last 20 or so years. You've been doing this for quite a long time. We are seeing now documentaries on everything, right? Um, it's almost like diluted the genre. And as a consumer, what's concerned me is that if people watch a documentary, they think it's true. And for you, have you seen this explosion of the documentary? Have you seen it being a good thing? or in any way, shape, or form thing, eh, that's kind of dangerous. Because just because it's a documentary, that doesn't mean it's necessarily right. Well, I think I think people do make a distinction between reality programming and documentaries. I mean, documentaries traditionally, and like I was, I grew up in the documentary business as doing cinema verite, being behind the scenes. I worked on some projects early on that were very much um, about following people over during some big event in their life. Um, and But that's very, very different than what happens with reality programming, which isn't true. And I think most people kind of know that what they're watching, A, is heavily produced. The producers are telling people what to do. I can only hope that they can distinguish that from a documentary where the filmmaker is following what unfolds versus creating the story. A fake story, basically. Do you think they can? Because some of these documentaries, I'm not even talking about reality television, Terry. I'm talking about things that are heavily, that are expensively produced that look authentic, but a lot of times they're produced with the idea of perpetuating just sometimes outlandish and crazy conspiracies and theories. But because it looks so good and authentic and it says documentary, people buy it. That's sure. my concern. Yeah. No, you're right. I mean. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I don't know what we do. Yeah, there, it, it is true. You can make something. You can cut. What makes me nervous is as technology develops and you can start to put words in people's mouths that they never even said. Oh. 
For sure. That's the really scary part. Okay, so uh, last question. This, yeah. this might be the most important question I'll ask. So a while back, as I referenced at the top, you made the uh, the show about Pluto with Neil deGrasse Tyson, and specifically whether or not Pluto is a planet. Now, I vividly recall not only watching it, but the fallout from that whole thing when the New York Times article came out and how many people had fun with it. And then it was people were really upset about it, right? <laughs> so do you, Miss Terry Randall, chronicler of all things outer space, Pluto, planet or Disney dog? <laughs> I don't think it makes a difference what you call it. I think it's just, I think, you know, you know, is it a planet? Is it a dwarf planet? I would lean towards the dwarf planet, but I think it's terminology. So semantics. Yeah, I think uh, uh, for, for you know, depending on how old you are, you know, that for certain people it will always be a planet. For Alan Stern, who's the head of the New Horizons mission, Pluto will always be a planet. He will always argue that Pluto is a planet, and he spent the vast majority of his career working on that mission. So, and when I got him for the Pluto files with him and Neil deGrasse Tyson together, there was a lot of tension there. Oh, was it really like awkward? He was mad. He was mad. <laughs> and you know, you know, he's done. He's uh, you know, the New Horizons mission has done extraordinary things. You know that spacecraft is still out there, and for all I know, they'll do, and you know, they'll they'll fly by another Kuiper Belt object, and we'll learn something new. So. I think that mission and his his dedication to Pluto is has really paid off. So, but so they, when you say that he was mad, that wasn't an act. No, that's great, uh, Terry. I could probably ask fifty more questions. No, I, it's fun. It's been fun. I but, thanks for well, looking at uh, my work. No, it's it's terrific.